Hello, this is Carsten Klein from Friedrich Nauern Foundation and this is Connecting the Dots, a podcast series that tries to bring together voices from Europe and South Asia to have a good conversation on the core values of liberalism and, of course, liberal way of life. We hope to capture the differing views, opinions and understandings of all of you. Thank you and have fun. My name is Abir Kapoor and I am the host of this podcast. I am a journalist, author and game designer and I work in the space of making rights more accessible. And today, I would like to tell all of you a story. On the night of July 14, 1990, Walter Zedelmeier, one of German television's most recognizable faces, was found brutally murdered in his Munich flat. It was Munich's most spectacular case in post-war history. Over the next three years, the time that it took to apprehend his murderer, the actor's most personal secret was outed and revealed to the public, one that he had held hidden for decades, that in fact, he was a homosexual. This bit of news was splashed all over tabloids, as the police interviewed nearly 50 of his sexual partners in search of a clue. After many twists and turns, in 1993, his adopted son, Wolfgang Wall, was arrested for his murder, and his accomplice was Wall's half-brother, Manfred Lauber. Wall had helped Zedelmeier run his bar, and the fear of being left out of the will was motive enough. They had staged the murder as a hustle murder to out Zedelmeier. Once they were convicted, the two spent a little more than a decade in jail, but the sensational murder never really left the public sphere. Radio broadcasts and televisions were a constant reminder. Sixteen years later, in 2007 and 8, they were given bail. The two felt that the repeated naming and shaming would prevent them from being reintegrated into society. And upon their release, both Wall and Lauber took several media outlets to court, including not only the German Der Spiegel, but also the English language Wikipedia, for mentioning their names in articles that described them as murderers. Wikipedia refused to remove the name, as this would have been an infringement on their media freedom. However, their petitions were challenged both at the German Federal Court and the European Court of Human Rights. The argument that was given was that public interests outweigh the need of the individual. This case helps us ask several questions that still affect our lives today and help us understand the centrality of privacy to our lives. So where does privacy end? I spoke to Professor Matthias Ketterman, who is the head of the research program Regulatory Structures in the Emergence of Rules in Online Spaces at the Leibniz Institute for Media Research, Hans Bredau Institute. His team investigates the rules under which new forms and practices of social understanding and self-assurance emerge in digital communication spaces. I asked him the question, where do rights end? Yes, that's a that's very, good, very good question. You always have to keep in mind that uh, privacy is an extremely important value 
but it also has certain limits. Um, my personal approach, based on the jurisprudence of um, European uh, courts, is always to look for the, um, the elements of, of the situation, the elements of the case. Who, whose interests does privacy protect? Is there an uh, overwhelming societal interest to breach privacy? Are there any countervailing interests which might be even stronger than the societal interest? And then apply those guidelines to, to a um, specific case. The, uh, the Sedelmeyer case was um, a, a case of, of superlatives in, in many instances. Um, there, were, um, there was one of the, the highest uh, rewards offered in, in Germany until that time ever for finding his killer. 500,000 uh, German marks at that time. Um, so the, the case obviously was extremely interesting and, and, and uh, raised a lot of um, a lot of people wanted to know about it. And I think that this is an element that has to be kept in mind too when considering uh, where, where privacy ends. Yes, of course, uh, people have privacy expectations, privacy rights that go even beyond their, their deathbed. But um, especially in cases involving people that are in the public eye, courts have in the past um, been more reluctant to withhold um, information access to the public. Now, it's also important to keep in mind how does the public get their information? And I think that the motives of people who share um, uh, information about people that might um, impact their their privacy expectations has to be has to be kept into has also been taken into account. There's a big difference whether you want to um, shame somebody and uh, divulge information, or rather whether you um, share information about a person um, based on you know on a conviction that this information wouldn't uh, wouldn't harm that person. As Dr. Ketterman said. It is really about how the public get their information and the motives of those who share the information. In South Asia, these boundaries of shame, harm and the freedom of information are getting blurred. How intrusive can media be? Celebrities, of course, live very public lives. But that distinction is becoming very fine for regular people and others too. I spoke to Dr. Sarayu Natarajan. I spoke to Dr. Sarayu Natarajan, the founder of Apti Institute, a public research institute that looks at the intersection of technology and society. They've been around for about four years now and have done quite a bit of work, both in thinking about the questions of access and governance and power with respect to technology more broadly, as well as questions of data protection, privacy, data intermediation, intermediary, li intermediary liability, safety and harm. Uh, this case, I think, uh, lines up or sort of, you know, uh, starts to chip away at very many of the things that we are doing from the work perspective, uh, but also uh, my own personal interests. Uh, I think the, the first, of course, Abir, as you set it up, is sort of the paradox of the tussle uh, between notions of privacy and notions of freedom of speech and freedom of the press, more broadly speaking. 
um and that is of course uh, something that's been quite a significant tussle not just in germany where the case occurred uh, but across several democratic con- contexts including in india of course um so that's i you know i guess in a central way the way courts have interpreted it the way sort of local politics has evolved um are considerations that need to be taken into account in understanding and unpacking that tussle which i hope we do over the course of the episode uh i think the second and i think that's particularly relevant in the current context um relates to how these notions play out in a highly digitized world uh we live in a world where um what both traditional press and journalism is increasingly getting digitized while also very many aspects of our interpersonal communication and now while digital offers several advantages you know it democratizes access people who couldn't traditionally you know be any part of a of an econ of the information economy in a certain way can now be be a part of it because of the digital medium um it also makes geography in a certain way irrelevant um it you know it it allows great facility and ease in terms of communication so it lowers the barriers of communicating once you're on a platform or a situation but what it also does is um it brings very rapid dissemination the cost of an additional copy is zero um the time taken for it to reach one more person is zero which are all um not true in the physical world so these notions of privacy versus freedom of speech um versus even you know questions like what does safety mean in a digital world um because i would imagine in this particular case as you know as in the case of several controversial other cases um there's a question of public safety also that is involved in a certain way dr natarajan puts forward many many interesting points those that allude to the challenges we face to our privacy today public safety is absolutely central as communication technologies get digital and it takes very little to forward information about anyone and which brings us back to the question of motives as raised by dr ketterman however there is a third very important question one that has no straight answer and sort of seamlessly ties itself to the previous two questions do we have the right to be forgotten do criminals have a right to have their records expunged from social media so they can get back to life properly to help us arrive at some sort of basic understanding of this question we're joined by kumar lopez the ceo of the sri lankan press institute the institute is a unique one founded by four media organizations the publishers the editors guild the free media movement and the working journalists of sri lanka to do a few things primarily they aim to professionalize journalism they aim to uphold the freedom of information and media freedom while doing this they train journalists they teach them about the safety and through that maintain good quality journalism that strengthens sri lanka's democracy so going back to this uh, initial case that uh, abir you basically uh, ran us through i mean i strongly believe like i mean like uh, definitely there is a challenge that we have in regard to what is of public interest and what is of private nature and in this case when you talk about like i mean whether the, the right to uh, forget is something that we need to be looking into and whether it is something that uh, 
that is definitely warranted in this scenario, in this situation that you explained. I would say like it depends on the context and the uh, the situation that is in. But I think the biggest challenge that we have here is about how do you define privacy? Where where does privacy stop? How do you define? Because like I mean, Sarah, you just made a point at the end. It's about uh, the public security, and today we talk about the national security also, right? So how do we how do we ensure that with with a with a context in which where we work, where we have uh, so much of issues in regard to uh, calamities, human-made disasters, man-made disasters, and uh, things. How do we work around these scenarios and where do you draw the line? So it's a huge uh, discussion that we have. But what I want to make uh, a point here is that at the end of the day, basically, if you look from the journalist point of view, it actually ends up with that journalist and that media organization that how they view that situation. So it's about the call to take whether it's ethical for me to take this as uh, something of public interest. How do I define it? Right, and then ensure like, look, yes, this is how it is going to help the public to identify. So even even like, I mean, this is something that I also have uh, a challenge with, like uh, with uh, the laws such as uh, right to be forgotten or right to erasure. Right, we we are basically talking about like, yes, a person can actually ask for to saying that these records should not be in place because that person just as in your case scenario that the person has. Uh, uh, serve the term. However, right, would it be of some validity for somebody in the future if they are to, I mean, today we're talking about influencers. Today we're talking about influencers on digital media. We do not sometimes know the backgrounds of things, right? And we do not know how we have been allured into certain things, right? So in that case, would a background or historical information becomes vital in today's uh, context? Because Anybody can become an influencer. Nobody holds responsible. Nobody is going to be accountable to say, like, look, I'm holding accountable for the information. I'm saying this. And we have seen this in enough of scenarios where the elections have been driven by these influencers for change. We have seen economical aspects, like uh, uh, how people have influenced uh, the, the digital, the Bitcoin to go up, and how they have also influenced the same uh, Bitcoin to come down, right? So I think it's 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 a it's it's an it's going to be an ongoing discussion. It's going to be a gray area for a while until we kind of come with certain um, certain mechanisms, awareness, and knowledge among the society, uh, media literacy, and other literacy literate areas that would come into play. That would basically bring about the right change with the right ethical aspects and so on. Mr. Lopez puts forward a compelling set of arguments about the ethics of information and what travels through society. However, as he said, in this day, anyone can become an influencer. Anyone can out anybody. And this can cause wide fluctuations from the market to people's lives. I had asked Dr. Ketterman a similar question. How do you put limits on people? How do you put limits on people talking about other people? And what about the press? What about the media? What about social media? How do we regulate in a way that we can preserve people's privacy? Historically, uh, courts both in Germany and <clears throat> on the European level have, um, as, I've, as I've mentioned, um, been more, more open to 
to um, open the privacy field of more well-known persons, especially if they either put themselves out into the public eye or if they've um, done something that might be considered of societal interest, right? And yeah. this jurisprudence can be applied rather seamlessly to the uh, to the online communication space. So just as one example, um, is it okay for photographers to try to take pictures of intimate settings of famous people? No, as we know from the Caroline cases. Is it okay for photographers to take pictures of famous people as they walk around? Yes, that is okay. Is it okay for um, somebody to uh, take a picture and write a story about a famous person relieving themselves uh, behind a, a restaurant? Yes, there was a case uh, that uh, related to such an instance. And the courts there said uh, if that person is well enough known, um, uh, they have a less high expectation of privacy, even for acts such as relieving yourself behind a public building um, that other, that otherwise might be um, covered by, by a normal or regular or less well-known person's expectation of, of privacy. The big, the big challenge which I see um, regarding the way we communicate online is that it's so much easier for violations of privacy to have extremely negative consequences uh, on, on people. I mean, the Sedelmeyer case and what happened uh, to him regarding the disclosures about his sexuality and orientation, um, they, they happened at a time when people would get their news primarily from newspapers and from the, from the, from the TV stations. Um, but in today's communication realities, such news would travel much faster. Well, to be honest, not that kind of news because it's no longer news. Um, or, or not considered to be uh, incredibly interesting anymore, what uh, sexuality you have or what, uh, what, what orientation you have. But um, the new realities of online communication just can make any privacy violations so much worse. And yeah. they can remind people of those violations again and again and again by republishing them. So I think that is something which courts haven't yet had a, had enough time to take into account because obviously that should sometimes make them more cautious in permitting privacy violations in the first place. While in the West, the news of being an homosexual or a homosexual isn't one that is news anymore. It can have very serious implications in South Asia. In June, I had traveled to Malay for a media education workshop. When there, a case caught my attention of a young female actress and a TikTok star called Mariam, Sh- Mariam Shifa. A video of Shifa had been released of her being caught with another woman. She was a member of the Maldivian National Party who called for an immediate investigation. Maldives is a Muslim government. Maldives is a Muslim country or an Islamic nation governed by Sharia law. Her homosexuality is a punishable offence. Shafi claimed that the video was doctored. While there, I spoke to Professor Dr. Ahmed Zaki of the, Maldi- of the Maldives National University, who teaches journalism and Maldivian history. Dr. Zaki has an illustrious 
history of working in public policy, academia and in the nation's media council. We spoke about a wide-ranging set of issues, ranging from Shafi and the importance of privacy and the importance of being forgotten in Maldives. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 you know, my belief is even you know, we should all respect the privacy of the individual, individual freedom, individual rights, and you know, you know, individual privacy. These things belong to the person. But here in the Maldives, what happens is because uh, we are a Muslim Muslim state, and the country's Islamic laws are being implemented. What happens is, you know, the state has. Uh, a responsibility to investigate, you know, this, you know, if there is a control, you know, if anybody contravenes the laws of Islam, of Islam the state will take over and investigate and see what has been done and punishments will be given. So what happens to individual rights then? Yes, yeah, so, so in Islam, individual rights kind of, you know, sort of uh, will no longer be able to practice or will not be can, cannot be tolerated at that level because you know uh, people in, in a Muslim society where people like Shifa are Muslims and if they went against any principle of Islam or any you know Islamic uh, regulation or you know belief or tradition the, the state will you know the state will prosecute. So, but having said that, it does not mean the media should, the media has a right to sort of put the whole thing on display, because those things uh, are done at the court by a Muslim judge, but it does, uh, and even in court cases, you know, uh, a lot of things are kept uh, in privacy, you know, they don't, they don't give those things to the media, media is not, you know, for example, if Shifa says she doesn't want this to be uh, put, put, put out, it won't be. Even in even in Islam, you know, even if we, uh, you know, if, if, if somebody does a wrong in, in his life or in her lifetime, so when we, when we, we, when we are dead, God also will not, you know, question in public. So other people won't be hearing about the, the secret things that the men and women did in, in their life. Because God, although how powerful, no matter how powerful God is, Allah is, he does not humiliate the people even in after we, we leave the earth. And when the, it is the question time, the God does not humiliate us by questioning so that others also know what we did in secret in, in the world. So secrets are kept as secrets. Privacy is well honored. So this, it, it is there, but media entering and playing these roles is, you know, in my way, it is unacceptable, you know, because it not only humiliates the people like Shifa, it also kind kind of uh, totally destroys life. You know, she will have, you know, I mean, it is like punishment for the whole life. So, Professor Zaki said that even God would think twice about humiliating us. And even God protects individual privacy. However, when it comes to violent crimes, like in the case of Zedelmeyer, should privacy still be important? At what point does public safety outweigh individual rights? That's a very, very good question again. So, um, first of all, I absolutely believe that people have a, a right to to sort of start again, right? Yeah. Uh, no, no, no person should be um, seen as as being forever. Uh, outside of the possibility to you know to better themselves, 
Um, however, this has to be strongly countered with a with the, the right of the public to be informed about what that person had done, right? Um, I, I recognize, and the law recognizes too, that there is a, a tension, a strong tension between those two uh, values, right? So on the one hand, people should be able to start again, you know, not to be confronted each day with something they did in the past after a certain period, but the public also has to have certain protections, right? Um, Austria has an interesting law on its books. It's called the it's a criminal code that um, makes it a crime to accuse somebody or even to 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 mention to somebody that they had committed a, a crime for which they had gone to to prison. And there's no similar law in Germany, but the jurisprudence is, is rather similar in any in any case. Meanwhile, in South Asia, there exist no such laws, and the right to be forgotten is a complex one. Let's hear Dr. Natarajan's position on how history, laws, crime, and the right to be forgotten interrelate, especially in a world that is fast digitizing. So even the notion of history, I mean, I think that uh, we always know that history is often written by the victors, it's written by the most powerful, so this notion of power is something that must underlie how we think about the right to be forgotten for sure, but a whole range of other things. I think we need to make a distinction though between, you know, information that is a part of a court record, for example, um, and information that is reported um, in, let's say, traditional print media, and then stuff that is out there on the internet. They're not all the same categories of information. And I think processing and parsing them and thinking about this notion of the right to be forgotten uh, differentially with respect to each of these is absolutely necessary. Can the historical record that is, you know, within a, the Indian courts, for example, um, yeah, record, are courts of record in the sense that there is a written judgment that forms a part of the country's jurisprudence. Can that be forgotten? I don't think so. Um, and the notion of privacy uh, with respect to, uh, you know, criminal cases being prosecuted in court, you don't have a risk, like you, case judgments are available and that cannot be taken away. And there's, there's no notion of the right to be forgotten there. Um, if, you're a, if you're a person convicted of a crime, that is a part of the country's record. Um, of course, there's a broader question around digitization of these records and what does that mean, etc. But, you know, at the end of the day, that's a part of the court record. It's a part of the justice system of the country. There's the second um, and then the third, which is further murkier, if you see them almost as layers, right? There's reporting of the case itself, which is very, which can almost entirely be assumed to be the decision of the court itself. But there's a layer of reporting, right? Um, and how does the, the, the notion of the right to be forgotten intersect with that? Then there's the notion of public opinion, which in the current moment, uh, is completely boundaryless in the sense that anybody who is anybody can have an opinion on anything that is anything. Um, and it's not governed, um, as Kumar said, by etiquette. It's not governed by any system of ethics. Uh, and it's compounded by the problem of viral dissemination, which is that the cost of reproduction is basically zero. Nor, and the cost of viewing is also basically zero. Um, to think about the right to be forgotten across all three categories in the same way without understanding the peculiar politics of this, 
um particularly in the la last category which is that of you know digital reproduction and dissemination where the power of the algorithm as kumar pointed out plays in um i mean i don't i don't know if it's right uh, i think we need uh, and abir if we have three hours at our disposal happy uh, yeah. to continue this discussion uh, but i do think that there's a differential approach to thinking about the right to be forgotten versus the notion of public interest public uh, yeah. you know history more broadly speaking that needs to be accounted for so you know those are my two pence worth of uh, thoughts on this uh, very tricky question and rightly so this is a difficult topic to arrive at an answer to in about half an hour i believe that by using this case study and investigating the right to be forgotten public interest and individual rights we were able to provide you an albeit brief insight into a deeper conversation also we were able to show you how different societies are looking at similar issues i would like to end with a fascinating anecdote by dr ketterman and until next time this is abir signing off and i hope you had a great time listening to connecting the dots i i think one of one of the books which which really impressed me um when i was studying law was um, a book by beate rosland she's a um a privacy law expert uh, at the University of Amsterdam and she wrote um, a book um she, she worked you know, on autonomy on, on privacy on, on personhood and 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 one thing which which she which she wrote um in in one of her recent books was that a, a, you know when she was a child she was traveling with her mother in in a train mm-hmm. they saw a woman applying lipstick on that train right and her mother leaned over to her and whispered in her ear don't you ever do that oh. only loose women apply lipstick in public you know mm. um and and she she re- referred to that story um and did that by linking it to you know what what kind of things are now totally okay to do in public and to discuss in public and to write about in public um and and i think that if this you know this f- fundamental change of what we consider public and private happens within such a small time span 30 years it's mm. it'll be really really exciting to see how, in what direction we're going to be heading are we going to see a, a rise in our in the in the in the importance we 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 put to um to privacy because it's so much more easy to breach it or perhaps are we entering what some scholars have called a post privacy world you know um well, personally i i tend to go to the former option i think that we're going to enter an age where privacy becomes more valuable sometimes yeah. a luxury uh, but definitely something that will be more modulated so i believe that people will uh use tools in the future more cleverly to um have different kinds of privacy like a nuanced privacy with regard to certain groups um you know some privacy basically some personal privacy settings for family and and for the public and courts will have to deal with that and they will have to make sure their jurisprudence is as nuanced as the realities of how we encounter privacy Hello, this is Carsten Klein from Frechnauern Foundation and this is Connecting the Dots. 